What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve-O Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here. Pepsi Zero Sugar. Partial to pastrami, craving a Cubano. Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact, every bite is better with Pepsi. Hey, GapFest fans, if you're a reader of Slate as well as a listener, you might have noticed that Slate.com recently installed a paywall. It's not a paywall for the podcast, but it is for the print side. We wanted to let you know that with a Slate Plus membership, not only do you get great Slate podcasts without any ad interruptions, but you also get access to all the great writing on the Slate.com website. From recent coverage of the coronavirus to who counts, an ongoing investigation into whose voices will be left out of the 2020 election, Slate is committed to keeping you informed about everything this year has in store. And your support is extremely valuable. It helps Slate continue this important work. You can sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And thanks. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 16th, 2020, the I Alone Can Open It edition. I'm David Plotz of my bedroom closet in my house. I have total authority to open the double-hung windows. No one else has any authority to open them because no one else understands them. It is my decision for many good reasons. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale joins me. Emily, do you have total authority to open anything in your house? You know, I sometimes refer to my kitchen as in you are making a mess in my kitchen. And then everybody else in my house points out to me that's a really bad way to talk about it because then it seems as if they have no responsibility for it as well as no ownership. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. John Dickerson, do you have total authority to open anything in your house? Only my mouth. Um, But like... I don't know. Do your kids really give you total authority to open your mouth? Mine well, don't give me it's, that. Um, much like the presidency, you can open your mouth as much as you want, but uh, it does not mean that people will listen to you. In fact, sometimes it means just the opposite. On today's GabFest, can President Trump order the country reopened? Then economist Heather Boucher joins us to talk about how catastrophic the coming recession slash depression slash whatever is going to be. Then the brilliant Amanda Ripley wrote a whole book about how to survive a disaster, who survives a disaster, how and why they do it. We are going to talk to her about that. Plus, we are going to have cocktail chatter. The president this week infuriated public health officials, governors, constitutional scholars by at least briefly claiming total authority to reopen the economy, whatever that actually means. In response, we have compacts of governors on both the East and West Coast issuing guidelines for how they are thinking about how to lift limits on business and school closures. We have corporate America kind of backing away from the president. I mean, mostly backing away from the president because they are very concerned about what it would mean to reopen the country before it's ready. We're going to discuss some of the economic issues in our next segment. For now, let's start with some of the legal, political, and and epidemiological issues. Emily, governors in general have very broad powers under police powers to issue emergency rulings about public health and safety. That's how we have all these state shutdowns. It's very clear they can shut things down, right? But is it clear they can open things up? Yes, it is clear they can open things up. I mean, President Trump has had another spate this week of making outlandish, uh, untethered to any law statements, which get a lot of attention because we have to knock them back. He does not have this authority. He also cannot adjourn Congress, um, except if they do not agree to come back. This was another threat he made this week. The Senate and the House do have a plan about when to come back. No president has ever used this tiny window of potential authority in the Constitution to adjourn Congress. So that is also a ridiculous statement. And I wonder if there's a way in which either Trump is just flailing, he wishes he had some kind of total authority and magic wand right now, or it's just a big distraction. Because what's really happening is that the federal government has a lot of responsibility for creating the conditions under which states can safely reopen. The states need money 
desperately. That has not really been in these relief packages so far. They're running huge deficits, paying for all of the consequences of the coronavirus. And they also need the CDC and other federal authorities to be helping them get the testing they need uh, to, to get open again. And so there's this way in which what Trump is saying is sort of the opposite of what he's doing. I Actually, I, when I was posing that question, I was actually, I, I meant it slightly rhetorically when I said, can governors reopen things? To me, the real issue is, you know, you can declare yourself prince, you can declare yourself king, you can declare everything reopened. There, there are clear police powers whereby governors and in certain circumstances, the president for certain things can close things, stop people from doing things. There is no power in the world that can compel people to go shopping, that can compel people to, to frequent restaurants, that can compel people to go to the zoo or go to the theater. So that to me is that one of the questions which is so confounding about this, which is that the power to close and the power to open are not the same thing. Yes, that's totally true. Governors can lift orders. That doesn't mean people will follow. I think that there's a real division in the country. I mean, the polls show that almost everybody says don't open up prematurely if the virus isn't beaten. And I think there's going to be a lot of fear and nervousness and slow walking back. And then there are people who want more freedom than they have right now. And we're starting to see some protests like in Lansing, Michigan this week. I think that's a very small percentage of people. But it's an interesting development and has to do with, you know, the kind of libertarian streak, which I mean, one can understand feeling oppressed by these orders. On the other hand, what you just said is the fundamental question here. Like, when is it actually safe? When do people feel confidence? To me, uh, the president's basically using a rhetorical and political and self-preservation move when something more nourishing and useful is required. So before we even get to the to whether uh, how these um, powers who they rest with. I mean, they obviously rest with the governors. Presidents can claim powers um, to focus everybody's mind. When Truman uh, nationalized the steel companies, he said, you know, the president has the job of making sure the country doesn't go to hell. He may he was uh, outside of his powers, but he, through the blunt force of, of his personality and focus, was trying to focus everybody on on the main thing. In this case, the president, when he talks about opening up the economy, what does that mean? What is the blunt force of the office aimed at? It should be aimed at testing because testing is the precondition for, quote unquote, opening the economy for whatever that means. But it, the president's antics this week were not aimed at a specific result. So that's the first challenge and problem of what he did this week. And the second is that it looks, as Emily said, like a diversion. <clears throat> and usually with the president, you can Whatever the chaos of the moment is, if you look at the underlying thing that he's trying to avoid or get get away from, um, it highlights and underscores the challenge for him. And the, the challenge for him is that he's being correctly criticized for a sluggish and cold response to increasing pressure from people within his administration to act um, in January, then in February and March. And so what this theatricality is, is an attempt to make a debate over who has the power, make it look like he is the one who's been pushing and pushing for the economy to open. So he would prefer people see him as the guy who is obsessed with getting the economy started again, rather than the person whose poor management structure, slow response, constant public downplaying created the conditions that he now finds himself in. Right. I mean, Trump, who sees this narcissistically as ever through the lens of himself, is looking at his reelection numbers and his favorability numbers. And he wants to get credit for something. And if he can't get credit, he wants to discredit his opponents by having the economic slowdown and the recession be at their feet. They're not opening the economy. They're causing ruin. The substantive issue, which is like, is what is it safe for Americans to do? How can we prevent this pandemic from from sweeping the country? How can people get back to the business of of working and of education and of all the things they need to do as safely and as as efficiently and as quickly as possible is much less important to him than the political sort of gamesmanship with the governors and with Democrats. And it's it is it's a tragedy for us. Emily, talk about this testing question, because it is it does seem that the fundamental thing that needs to happen before anything can be discussed is that a testing regimen has to be in place that Americans trust. 
Yes, and it has to be at scale. I mean, we are so far behind on this, and I'm. it's starting to make me so incredibly angry because, I mean, I hope this doesn't come to pass, but it looks to me like we are facing much more time in this kind of gray nether zone than we would otherwise. I was watching an interview on CNBC that my mom told me to watch with um, Jen Spahns, who is the health minister of Germany, and they have this whole robust testing regime that they spent a lot of time and effort and I'm sure money getting up and running. Our government was incredibly slow to get that started. And if you read about testing now, it seems like it's coming. We're now up to, we're sort of plateaued at about 145,000 tests a week. We need to be at like millions to get the economy going again, really. There still seem to be all these mislinks, labs that have more capacity than is actually being used, states that are going around begging. Somehow there has been a failure here. Some of it has to do with the supply chain. There are chemical supplies and just the nasal swabs and pipettes that need to be hugely mass produced. And sure, it takes a while for the supply chain to catch up. But if we had started back in January or February, we would be so far ahead of where we are now. And this is where the lack of leadership from the federal government, I just, it's unconscionable and it's going to cause so much extra damage on its own. I'm just really struggling with that this week as I think of all for me people can obsess about different parts of the horror of this to me the small businesses lost and the kids out of school and maybe home for the summer like how is that going to work all that lost learning there's been an uptick in child abuse I'm just really having trouble with how much the government is at fault for that just one little thing I would add in Germany just to give you a sense they have a a good testing regime. They're starting to open up businesses, small businesses, a little bit more. They're they're kind of inching into the new new world slowly. But even they are talking about not having any large public events until after August thirty first. So that's you know in a country that has had that has managed the, the the problem and now is managing the way back in with the power of testing, which everybody says is at the center of this. And even they're not talking about major events uh, until the end of the summer. And they're also prioritizing the things that make sense to prioritize, right? They're talking about moving step by step. And I think the governors, some of them in the United States, are starting to do that too, like Gavin Newsom's um, frameworks this week have started to take us down that road. But there is just going to be this huge time lag because we were so slow. John, one of the problems that I see here is that Insofar as we're in a legalistic framework and like, you know, authority to open, authority not to open, it seems problematic because one of the fundamental things that allows these kind of restrictive public health measures to carry forward is public trust. And it's the belief that the public is acting legitimately, fairly in the overall interests of everyone. If people stop believing that, or if that belief becomes a kind of partisan divide, that some people believe it and some people don't, and and their their view is, is shaped by what political opinions they hold generally, it's going to be very hard for this, this collective effort to be maintained over the months that we need to maintain it. And especially when the, you know, one of the most potent voices in American public life is actively undermining the... Uh, information coming from the best sources in his own government, which is to say the president. I mean, this is the cost as we look back at how to avoid doing this again and how to build a better society afterwards. There is a cost to the diminution of the power of presidential speech uh, or the use of presidential speech simply and exclusively for the maintenance of partisan advantage and 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 sort of maintaining the base. Um, and you spend that capital beforehand and you and you you habituate um, supporters of the president to say, oh, he doesn't mean it. It's uh, you know, he's just uh, counterpunching. He's being rhetorically, um, you know, florid and and don't pay attention. The person with the most potent voice in a moment when clear a clear signal from the government is important for for citizens, but also to have the propulsive force within the organization to keep everybody on task to say that voice is to be ignored and is irrelevant is 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 just not 
the way you run a railroad. I'm just going to close by pointing something out, which is in Sweden, which where society is ostensibly open, movie attendance is down 90 percent. So you can open the economy. And if only 10 percent of the people have the trust that they can do the activities they want to do, you haven't opened anything. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. This is a great week to join Slate Plus. There's so much great work being done at Slate, and Slate, like so many other places, is, is having some tough times with the media market, the advertising market, and if showing your support for the GabFest and for all the other great work Slate is doing would be so appreciated this week. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest plus today. Our Slate Plus segment is going to be, we're going to imagine ourselves to be billionaires. How would we spend our millions of dollars if we had it to help right now? That will be our Slate Plus discussion. Slate.com slash GabFest plus to join. Heather Boucher is the president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. She's also the author of Unbound, How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. Heather, as we're talking on Thursday morning, their new unemployment numbers sounds like from you that 5 million more people filed for unemployment. What does that tell you about the shape of this coming depression, recession? I don't even know what other word we have for it yet. Yeah, well, the the things in the economy are pretty challenging right now. Um, I mean, I just want to start by the fact that we need to constantly recognize that this is first and foremost a health crisis that has now become an economic crisis because we have not taken the steps in order to contain the virus or to make sure that testing is widely enough available or to make sure that places of business are not places where this virus is transmitted. You know, you referenced today's new numbers. Um, you know, there are over 5 million more people who've applied for unemployment benefits, the fact that, that we have these benefits is actually really important and is one of the most um, important things we could be doing to keep the economy out of a full-throttled depression. So while, you know, David, your question is, you know, how are things going, you know, recession, depression, this is a very unique economic moment because if we can get the health crisis under control, there is still a chance that we can pull the economy back. I feel with each day that that probability fades and we are probably looking at a deep and protracted recession, if not something greater. But all of this is within our capacity to take action. Um, this isn't just happening to us. It is, um, we have a lot of agency here or policymakers do. You were talking before we started about short-term compensation and a low rate of people taking up those benefits. Could you talk a little bit about that? You seemed surprised by it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, policymakers made available to states during the last, during the Great Recession, um, was uh, giving them the option for the state unemployment insurance systems to allow uh, employees to get unemployment benefits if their hours were cut, but they didn't completely lose their job. Now, this kind of recession caused by the, um, the policy steps we've needed to take to address the coronavirus is the perfect uh, example of the kind of economy where this kind of program could be so valuable. You know, I think of uh, local restaurants who are now just doing takeout. So they still need some chefs. They still need some people to staff the, the phones and, you know, bag all the food, but they don't need all of their staff. So what they could have done is um, lowered everybody's hours, let some people get these partial benefits, and then once policymakers get um, get all of their ducks in a row, get the testing, get the protective gear, get all the things we need to get the economy up and running, they would have those employees there still on their payroll. But what we're seeing is very is relatively few employers are taking advantage of this program, in no small part because not every state um, or, or territory offers it. By my uh, understanding, there's a, I think about 21 states that actually have these short-time compensation programs. So one of the most important things we could do is let's get every state to do that. This is the kind of innovative policy that could really be helping a lot right now. Heather, picking up on that, it, um, the analogy to a medically induced coma has been used. I wonder if you find that useful because what you just described seemed to be if states were allowed to um, follow the unemployment scheme you were just describing, then people stay on the payroll. They don't they don't drift away from the economy. And then when when things start to get better, you can basically bring the economy out of its coma. Is that the right way to think about it? And then are there other elements of 
an economy that could be put into this kind of brownout stage, but then animated faster than, say, a, a normally an economy would be animated after the Great Recession or some other more traditional economic shock? I think that all of that is um, is perfectly apt. Let me start by saying um, we were talking about putting the economy on ice rather than in a coma um, in no small part because I don't like to think of the economy as a body. It's not a person. It doesn't have agency. The economy is all of us acting out there together as producers and consumers. So it's about all of us in our society. So that's just one small one small point. But I think that when uh, policymakers started learning about this in January, there were a series of things they could have done to put the economy on ice. And there were a series of things they could have done to have ensured that places of business did not become hotspots for the virus. Very first thing I would have done would have um, been to ensure that every worker in the United States had access to paid sick days, um, right? If you have a cough or a cold, you should stay home. Think how many transmissions were caused due to the lack of paid sick days, and we are the only um, one of our economic competitors that already does not have that program. Second, would have made sure that everybody had access to health care so that if they did get sick, they didn't have to worry about going to the doctor. You know, as we've gone through this crisis, um, I'm tending more to speak in the past tense because the problem now is that with um, tens of millions of people already separated from their employers, um, and that's what we learned today with this new unemployment data. Now, um, when we want to get the economy up and running, um, all those employers need to go out and they need to rehire people. So that's not that's not the model we're talking about here today. Now, um, we've made it that much harder to have that so-called V-shaped recovery, the kind of recovery that we all need and want. We're in a catastrophic recession already, but there has been a, you know, by historical standards, a huge government response, both in fiscal and monetary policy. Let us suppose that there is a Democrat elected president in November and there's a Republican Senate. I'm worried that on the fiscal side, where Republicans, certainly during the Great Recession, were extremely reluctant to spend when Democrats are in the White House, that we could find ourselves in in 2021 with a continuing recession, but a Congress that's unwilling to spend our way out of it anymore. Does that concern you? These are things that keep me up at night or wake me up in the middle of the night. You know, last May, Equitable Growth worked with the Hamilton Project to release a book called Recession Ready, um, where we had a number of scholars um, talk about what kinds of policies we needed to have in place so that our nation would be as prepared for the next recession as possible. Um, and a lot of the experts, um, myself and Jay Shambaugh included, played roles during the last economic recession and had a lot of lessons that we had learned that we wanted to get out there. And the key lesson that we talk about is that in a recession, we know what policies work. As David, as you just said, Congress has already put in place a series of packages that have expanded unemployment benefits, have gotten direct payments to individuals, have provided some aid to the states. These are all policies that are tried and true. We've done them in previous recessions, and we have empirical research that shows that they are effective. What we proposed in the book is that we need to think about each of these as things that we turn on in economic downturns and then turn off as as the economy improves, but not until it improves. And we've been working really hard to encourage policymakers um, to understand that they are going to need to keep these programs on for as long as we have a recession. And that's what we learned during the Great Recession. We did not keep benefits flowing to the extent that we needed to. And that is what partially what created that long L of the slow economic recovery. That right after the Great Recession, when the economy started coming back, it was those at the very, very top of the income distribution, the wealthiest among us who saw their incomes and importantly their wealth come back fairly quickly. Yet for the vast majority of people, bottom 90%, and certainly for middle class and working class families, that recovery was incredibly slow. And many families indeed never fully recovered either their income or their assets, their home values and the like, um, after the Great Recession. Um, Heather, do do you think these shocks, whether they come from pandemics or housing crises or whatever, are more a part of our life in the way that 9-11 taught us that instantaneous terrorism attacks are, are more a part of our life? Are big wild swings in economic shocks because of our interconnectedness and because of the of technology mean that there are just going to be more of these kinds of moments that you need to be prepared for and that you need firefighters for? I, I think there's a... It's a definitely a yes and answer to your question, John. Those choices 
that we have made around um, economic inequality are coming to, we, we are now seeing the implications of that. Policymakers and, and uh, scientists that think about health knew that we might see this kind of pandemic. We had seen, you know, H1N1 come around in 2009. Of course, we'd all watched um, other countries cope with Ebola and other viruses. So it's not like we didn't know that this was coming. So, um, uh, that this crisis was coming, but we also need to remember that we have a series of other catastrophes that that our nation is staring down, the world is staring down because of climate change, and we know that climate change will will both bring new diseases to our shores, but also is causing environmental damage that that um, our society needs to be prepared for, and we need to be actually thinking about how we build resilience. I think what we've uncovered now is that the complete lack of resilience in far too many communities and in our our economy is going to be devastating, not just on a human scale, but on an economic scale. Heather Boucher, thank you very much. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Amanda Ripley, frequent GabFest guest or occasional GabFest guest, is a writer in Washington, a contributor to The Atlantic and The Washington Post, among many other places, author of excellent, excellent books, including notably for us today, The Unthinkable, a book she wrote, I think, back in 2008, The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. Amanda has been writing about how the government can act to maintain trust, how we can act to maintain our health and sanity and connection during the pandemic. Amanda Ripley, welcome back to the GabFest. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. So the unthinkable uh, is more about sort of hot disasters, as I think of them, as fast catastrophes. What we're going through now is a kind of slow, inexorable, and in some ways invisible to us in our daily lives, those of us who are not in hospital or not with someone who's sick. How do you think surviving something like this and getting through something like this is different than surviving a fire or a sinking ship? What's the same? What's different? What's surprising to me is how similar it is, even though it's in slow motion. So of the disasters I've covered, probably what this feels most like is Hurricane Katrina. Obviously, it's different in many ways, but the behavior of people individually and in groups is strikingly similar. So, for example, 
in all kinds of disasters, whether they're fast or slow, most people go through at first a period of profound and very creative denial, as we saw here. And then there's a period of deliberation. And you see this with hurricanes where people get very social, like they check with each other, they check with family, neighbors, news sources to see if they should evacuate, right? And people check with five sources on average before making that decision. And then there's a period of gathering, right? <laughs> where people, uh, even if they don't need to, people like to get stuff together. And we saw that here with toilet paper and other things, right? So in plane crashes, it looks like, you know, the plane's on fire and you got to get off, you're on the ground. That's how most plane crashes go. And everybody goes for their overhead baggage, right? So that's a, a classic uh, behavior that in, in every kind of disaster from 9-11 to fires, it, it really doesn't matter. The human behavior is very similar. And there are good reasons for that, very understandable reasons. Um, so this is very prolonged, to your point, um, but the behavior feels very familiar. Amanda, you've also written incisively and... Um thoroughly about kids and education. I'm uh, admittedly a little obsessed right now with the consequences for kids and thinking through, you know, okay, the lost spring, but then the possibility of um, the out of time, the time out of school extending. Um, and I wonder what you're looking for as you think about the um, consequences for them. It's almost... Um... I can't, I almost can't get my head around it. It is not, it is not a good situation. Every weakness that every district or city or country has with education becomes much more apparent in times like this. Um, just like in every disaster, the health of an institution or a community before the disaster strikes is actually far more predictive of what will happen than the actual disaster <laughs> in a lot of cases. So going back to Katrina, one of the big takeaways for, for everyone who, who was there afterwards was how dysfunctional New Orleans was before Katrina. The court system, the police, the schools, things were very broken before that hurricane. And the effect of that made the, the damage so much worse, right? And so in the United States, you're gonna see the whole spectrum when it comes to schools. Schools, school leaders who were very strong before this and are very strong afterward make a huge difference. Communities that have more fairness built into them are going to be better off. Around the world, places that have more focus and equity in how they do education are going to be better off. So all those things kind of get stripped bare, just as they do in other, in other realms of our life. So it is it is very concerning. It's sort of like looking at the sun, you know, it's just like you can't, it's hard to do. So Amanda, all those things that we laud when a disaster hits, uh, we really needed to have before the disaster came in the first place. Um, is that right? Does that make, is that essentially what you're saying? And after you answer that question, who's responding well in this instance, either from a public figure standpoint or just anywhere that you would put your finger down on the on the response to this. yeah so so definitely there's there's still opportunity to to repair those things and sometimes there's more opportunity after a disaster strikes but because there's more money flowing in some cases not all but there's like you got to look back not just forward look back at what are the things that the weaknesses we had going into this as a family as a church as a neighborhood as a country and, and not just lament that, right? <laughs> but then say, okay, given that, though, that's where our focus needs to be, right? So we know as a country, let me just take education. Our weakness is math and equity. Let's just focus on those two things, okay? Like just, just be clear, <laughs> we can't do everything. So math is an, is an American weakness at every age and every income group. So if I were gonna target my SWAT team for education, that's where I would put it. Mathematics. It's very important. We are not good at it. And it matters for kids' lives. Okay. And also equity, right? Very important. We are not good at it. We are not the worst, right? We are not the worst in the world in equity, but we could do better. Um, so, so those are things that, that can help at least provide some clarity about what to focus on. Um, and what, what's going right? I mean, I think a lot of state and local leaders are really seizing this moment, as often, often happens in disasters. Um, 
to bring people together. You know, there was a more in common poll done about a week or two ago that 90% of Americans believe that we're all in this together versus 63% uh, a year or two ago. So there's a huge opportunity um, to really get people rallied and to create that sense of solidarity. I think a lot of state and local leaders are doing that. Um, a lot of, you know, neighborhood leaders, restaurant leaders, school leaders. So you see that all over the place. And that too is very, very typical of, of every disaster I've ever covered. Amanda, I want to bring two threads of things you've written together. So you've been writing recently about what allows a society to function well in a crisis like this, that you need fairness, that you need clarity, you need people to feel a sense of autonomy, a government that feel is trusted and competent. So that's one thread. The other thread is you've written, and we, we've had you on the show before, about the poisonous political divisions in American life, that we have uh, people who basically have totally epistemically different worldviews. And, and I wonder how you think those two forces are interacting now. And uh, are we in a better place or a worse place than we were a month ago? Because, you know, in that, when you think about the interaction of those two forces. Yeah, I mean, people are undergoing different pandemics, as we, you know, you've talked about on the show, depending on many different things in their lives, depending on their race, their income, their geography, their age, uh, but also depending on their political affiliation and intensity. So we know already that people who were highly partisan before this are experiencing this whole thing very differently from the average American. So most people are not viewing all of this through a partisan lens, but the people with the biggest microphones are, right? So the people who are most active politically on the left and the right, um, including leaders, but also people who are just activists and who are on Twitter and other things, which is totally predictable for a high conflict, uh, but incredibly dangerous and, and disruptive. And so, what's an example of a way that you think that's destructive? I mean, are you talking about like Laura Ingram kind of denial? What do you see happening on the left that worries you? Well, I think in both cases, it means that there's no, there's no law of good intentions. Like you can never, if, if everything is seen through that political lens, then if I were to say, and I think all of us have had these thoughts like, well, man, there's a lot of economic damage and that leads to mental illness and other health problems. Like, How do we weigh the costs and benefits of this? Um, I said this to a friend of mine the other day who's, who's very liberal and she immediately just, you know, just stomped all over it because it sounded like a Trump talking point, right? Like it's, it, it for her triggered that sensation of, oh my God, you're putting the economy before lives which is not what I intended. And I get that that has been reduced to this really kind of crass, simple terms in some places. But, you know, you, you know that's not, there needs to be the ability to talk about these things. Um, now, some people are, are exploitive and profiteering in disasters. So I don't mean to suggest that everyone is just like, you know, walking around with good intentions, <laughs> but most people are not. And so that golden hour of goodwill and camaraderie that people experience during and after a disaster should not be wasted. There are so many people who, when they exhibit thrift or um, proper risk tolerance, all the kind of resilience, they were often from a previous generation, people would say, oh, well, that's because they grew up in the depression and they learned these lessons that were sort of encoded in them. First of all, is that right? And is there any, what lingers either from the depression era or now who, have people been able to capture those sets of behaviors that worked in the crisis and then carry them into the non-crisis period? Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, what's cool is like we're in a moment where we can choose those things. Like you can decide, yeah. you know, that letting go of some of the trappings of the consumerist culture um, maybe or something that is something that you want to continue. Right. So there's there's some choice in that. If you look at 9-11, there was a, a, a huge sort of glorification of first responders, right? And that, I think, continued to some degree. And the same will probably be true with healthcare workers, like the sort of elevation of their status. And, and maybe if we work on it with teachers. So there's like these, these golden opportunities, right? And you have to kind of like seize them. And so there's a huge, like huge opportunity for leadership, for people who have big platforms, to, to carry those through. So I think you're, it's good to think about it now and not just but, let it happen. 
can I can I argue with that for a second? So, look, no one can gainsay the the bravery and the kind of difficulty that healthcare workers are undergoing and that, that they're exhibiting right now. And similarly, in post nine eleven, what first responders did and the sacrifices they made and the loss of life is, you know, astonishing and was tragic. To draw from that the conclusion that it would be good for American life to to escalate the the weight that healthcare workers or that first responders have in public policy debates, or to escalate, if you look at the Great Depression, the value of thrift or of not taking risks. I think it would be a mistake. Like it's not to like we we have a healthcare system where healthcare workers, notably doctors, have too much weight, and hospitals have too much weight in how we make policy. Uh, my conclusion is not necessarily that we want these are golden hour things. We want to we want first responders to always have the top voice when we think about emergencies, or that healthcare workers should decide what the shape of the healthcare system should be. These are decisions that we have to make as a society. So that's a, just a sort of a minor aside not to be grinch like yeah no i think that's a great point so you're saying you don't want to glorify the individual you know alleged heroes right at the expense of looking at the system like the system is the thing that they're riding on the system is the thing that's that's kind of gotten us into some of these problems to begin with it's not just the doctors it's it's the nurses right it's the home health care aides it's the system that leads us to not having enough icu beds like that those are the things that I think I hope linger. Um, but but right, I wouldn't want it to just be um, people who maybe already have an outsized voice having more voice. But there's also a distinction to be made between the weight they have in a post-COVID world and the weight, the attributes that they're displaying in this moment, the generosity, the resilience, the duty, dedication, sense of community, humanity, all of those things, those specific people happen to be demonstrating. And we can lift up those attributes that they happen to embody without having to give them extra weight in our policy debates. Right. Amanda, before you go, there was a protest in Lansing, Michigan, against the Governor Whitmer's uh, stay-at-home orders. I wonder what you made of those images and that impulse. I think this is a really important, important scene to to pause on because <sighs> there's a couple things we know about Americans, right? <laughs> it's hard to generalize, but we know that Americans don't like to be told what to do. There's something in our culture and our rhetoric that we like th- to have some sense of autonomy. That's actually true of humans, not just Americans. Good point. And uh, we know from the research into how to get people, the public, to cooperate in disasters, that it's it's super important that you give people a sense of autonomy. And then they will do amazing things. So while I realize that the people protesting in Michigan may not represent a bigger movement, and I'm glad that they did peacefully and they more or less were physically distanced, it might be useful to think about what they actually said, right? Right. Some of them said some really, really interesting things like, we don't like to be talked to like we're children. Now, this is something that we can fix. It's not too late. But I have been worried about the degree to which I've seen well-meaning leaders around the country use words like lockdown, like mandatory, like uh, enforcement. You don't want to go down that path unless you absolutely know it's worth it because there will be a backlash to it. So an example of this is, is um, you know, there used to be smallpox outbreaks all over the country all the time. It was like a major recurring tradition and it was miserable. In 1894, there was one of these outbreaks in Milwaukee and uh, it had happened before. Now the vaccine was already available, but most people didn't have it. The health commissioner of Milwaukee made a fateful decision, which is he allowed families in middle and upper class areas of the city to self-quarantine in their homes when they were sick. But in the more crowded German and Polish immigrant neighborhoods, uh, the city was forcibly removing and hospitalizing sick people because it was, you know, denser and more unsanitary. And this created a huge backlash. There was not trust in the system or the hospital to begin with. And people were really upset by that double standard. Talk about inequality. Yeah, exactly. And in addition to to autonomy, people need to feel like there's basic fairness. Okay. So this led to a series of riots through the poorest parts of Milwaukee. 
you know, thousands of people in, in the streets refusing to let officials take uh, sick children to the hospital, smallpox spreading, over a thousand people got sick, 244 died. This is after the vaccine was available, remember? And we have, by comparison, an example from New York City about 50 years later, also going through a smallpox outbreak, where they hand the health commissioner, different persons, so much of this comes down to the individual, sadly, but he decided something very different. He could have forcibly removed the sick, and he didn't. He decided to really enlist the public, treat them like grown-ups, tell them everything, be very transparent about what he knew and didn't know, and he got millions of New Yorkers to line up, sometimes waiting overnight, to get vaccinated against smallpox. And it was a massive, massive public health success. So I think there were two deaths or something, just, just incredible success. So this is an example of how you're much better off enlisting the public. The public will do amazing things, right? If they are well-informed and trust you, uh, and if they feel like they're part of the solution. I hope that this kind of thing um, is seen as a kind of early warning about how we talk about this and how we enforce these quarantines, because um, it just it's not worth going down the path of authoritarianism here. It's just it's, it's not worth it. That's a great illustration. I was thinking along similar lines this week when I was seeing an image of a man being forcibly taken off of, uh, I think, the subway in Philadelphia for not wearing a mask. And it was just such whiplash because you know, merely a week or two ago, the government was saying don't wear masks. And they had just, you know, gone through this 180 degree turn. And then, you know, it was like this image that was essentially a violent image. And I thought, like, come on, we need to explain to people why we need to exactly. do Exactly. I mean, that, that just really breaks my heart. Because again, speaking of that golden hour, do not waste this opportunity. Most people are being incredibly compliant with what is a huge huge sacrifice. And, and I wish more people would start talking about it and, and more leaders would be very clear that you know, we, we, re, we are allies with the public. We are, we are not enemies. Amanda, actually, I would talk, I read your story about the New York outbreak and mentioned my mother and my mother, who was a New Yorker and born in 1938, was like, yes, I got that vaccine. I had a scar on it, you know, till I was through college. That's awesome. It's a little half moon pit. Yeah, she remembered it vividly <laughs> and with, you know, fondness, essentially. So it worked. Uh, Amanda Ripley, thank you for joining us. Come back anytime. Thanks for having Stay me, guys. Safe. Take care. See you in the neighborhood. Let us go to cocktail chatter. Uh, the Washington Post food section had a whole article this week about how to make cocktails when you don't have any of the ingredients you need to how to how to freelance some cocktails. I didn't read it. Just pour some bourbon gin or vodka. Yeah, just pour a bunch a of stuff and drink, drink it. <laughs> Mix Risky them all. Also works. <laughs> uh, Emily, what is your chatter? I have two chatters this week. Uh, Melissa Murray, who is an NYU law professor and one of the hosts of Strict Scrutiny, an excellent podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. She has a new piece in The Atlantic pointing out that the Supreme Court should stick with the changes it's making because of coronavirus. Namely, the court is having video or teleconferencing, and for the first time ever, I believe, a live audio feed that we can all tune into. Um, I don't think Melissa is arguing they should not return to the courtroom. However, the live audio feed and that kind of public access seems like an excellent, excellent shift that the court should just um, continue with when we hopefully have a different, a new normal in American life. And then my second chatter is there is just a wonderful short story in The New Yorker from, I think, a couple weeks ago by Tessa Hadley, who is a favorite writer of mine. It's called The Other One. It's so good. And um, if you read it, just check out the pacing of it, which I thought was like startling in um, a way that uh, really made me think as a writer. So Tessa Hadley, The Other One, um, New Yorker short story from a week or two ago. John Valjean, what is your chatter? Um, it's funny you mentioned pacing. I wonder if we're more, uh, if, if the way our time is allocated in this time is different in the way we consume things. Because I, one of my chatter is about Ken Burns's um, documentary on jazz, which I went to revisit after interviewing Wynton Marsalis for the piece I did on 60 Minutes, because when we were talking 
I've always loved um, the idea of jazz, which is that you spend all of this time working through the math, the complicated math of jazz and knowing how to play it. But then when they've studied the brains of jazz musicians, the brains actually go into this mode when they're playing that is optimally designed for adaptation and collaboration. So it's a hugely complicated thing, piece of art created in the moment that relies on the interaction with others. You can't just stomp all over them or else you're not doing it right. But so it requires practice and then adaptation, which seems to me is true for basically any complicated thing. And Winton's point was that that's true of of this moment we're in, which is marshal all your forces and then be ready to uh, to to adapt. So I went back to the opening of the or went back to watching jazz, which is great. And the opening I watched sort of three different times to pick up all the things that were going on with the writing. Wynton Marsalis is, has a great riff at the beginning about jazz and what it is and why it's so magical. Um, and but the way in which they use sound, picture, um, the narration. Uh, so I recommend it, but, but the beginning in particular, I felt was really nicely done for one of those really massive openings for a long project. I wonder if you looked at improv comedians whether you'd see that same brain patterns if it's if oh, it, yeah. is it is improvisation just a a kind of neurologic capacity and it it crosses from musicians to comedians presumably there are lots of other professions where you need some kind of improv skill and is it the same thing in all of them right 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 my chatter i have two chatters uh one is a piece in The Economist, a column about COVID-19 slang, which is very charming. And I want to share a few international terms that have come up. Um, so there's Corona spec, which is a German term, which is used to describe basically uh, your COVID-15, your freshman 15 of COVID, the weight people are putting on when they're inside. And it means Corona fat. Corona spec means Corona fat. There's a French word, catorzain. So when you think about the word quarantine, I hadn't thought about this, but it is obviously connected to the French quarante, which is 40. 40 so they've made this word, 14, the 14 day isolation is 14 in French is 14 is 14. So 14 is the 14 day isolation, which is instead of quarantine, which I thought was cool. And then a Dutch term, which I loved, which is called hamsterin, which is like hamster, E-N, the end. And it is the uh, to be like a hamster, and hamsters keep food in their cheeks. And it is a term to describe what? Hoarding. Hoarding, yeah. It's like the Dutch term for hoarding is hamsterin, which is that's excellent. Excellent. Anyway, I uh, loved that piece in the Economist. I also want to quickly just chatter. I mentioned before that my brother John Plotz, who's a brilliant as well as humane and funny English professor, has a podcast about books, and he is doing a a special uh, uh, COVID-19 series called Books in Dark, Dark Times, where he's interviewing writers and, and professors and other folks that he knows and likes about books that are, they are finding comfort or interest in at this moment. And so his interview with me is going up today or Thursday. It's going up on Thursday. So I hope you listen to it. What's the book? Oh, it's a bunch of different books. We talk about a bunch of different books. What kind of books we're finding comfort in. All right, let's hear about your chatter, listeners. We got a lot of really good ones this week. Please keep them coming by tweeting them to us at, at SlateGabFest. What are you finding comfort and and solace and joy or just uh, interest in during your, your COVID-19 period? So please tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest. I want to call attention to something listener Barry Nailbuff sent us. Uh, Barry's also, a, I think, a friend of... Emily's and mine, or acquaintance of mine, and he points us to work by a historian at Stanford named Catherine Olivarius, which ultimately ended up being a New York Times op-ed, and it's absolutely fascinating work that Olivarius has been doing where she has studied the yellow fever epidemics that swept through the South, the American South, but particularly around New Orleans in the early and mid-19th century, and there became a kind of economy around having already had yellow fever and thus being immune to yellow fever. And that made you more economically valuable. It made you your wages higher. 
in the slave economy, it allowed New Orleans slave owners would sell their enslaved people for higher prices if those people had already been infected with yellow fever, because this was a disease that had a very high mortality. And there would be people who would even take the chance of getting infected with the disease uh, just to get the yellow fever passport. And so Olivares is it's just a totally fascinating history about a very gruesome moment in American life. And for everyone who's talked about, well, should we have COVID-19 passports for those who've survived and may have immunity? This is a, it's not a rejection of the idea. It's just sort of like, this is a way to help you think more subtly. And, and here's, here's a society where that actually happened. And what were the implications of it? Really great piece. What do we need to guard against? Yeah. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the GabFest. You'll get a new episode of the show the second we publish them every week. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank from her home in Minnesota. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who's working from her home in Illinois. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast from his home in New York, I think. June Thomas is the managing producer from her home, also in New York. You should please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us. For my beloved Emily Bazelon and beloved John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Thank you for being a member of Slate Plus. This is a week when Slate has Slate has had to make some cuts in salary for its employees, and I think uh, your membership and the support you're giving to Slate at this time is really valuable. It's allowed it's allowed Slate to uh, continue, and we're we're grateful for it. So, our Slate Plus topic today uh, is about billionaires. It's sort of like imagining ourselves to be billionaires, and one of the things that I've been surprised by during this crisis is that the billionaires are not as present as I expected them to be, given what an outsized uh, role they play in American life, how great they are at telling us how great they are, how how <laughs> good they are at their massive space project, or, you know, they're going to uh, remake the American economy in this way and that way, and they are such visionaries. And yet, you don't see them around. You don't see them, you know, except for Bill Gates, God love him, who is just a, a true hero. And don't I wish I w- he was president. You don't really see them coming through with things that seem to be helping society. Uh, a billionaire knowing friend of mine assured me that billionaires in her circle are very busy at all kinds of things and they are not simply holed up in New Zealand. Um, but I've been, I've been surprised. I've been surprised at how little uh, we've seen, but uh, it led to this this topic, which is if we were billionaires, we were lucky enough to be billionaires. I don't think either of you guys is. What what would <laughs> yeah, what would I don't, think. I don't think so. You think there's just some question? There's yes, that? it might be know. up in the air. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Emily. You got you know somebody you got a new electric did. car, Emily. That's true. So, somebody did, and um, and I can't remember who it was. Did a. a Physical representation of what a billionaire, um, how much a billion really is using, I think it was rice. Yeah. And, oh my, it, it was very helpful. I mean. It's a it, lot? Is that it your is point? It is so yeah. much. It is so, so much. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, it is a lot. I saw that Bill Gates today actually just put, supplied all of the U.S. funding plus for WHO that we've we've deprived them of. He was like, you know what? You <laughs> Trump, you took it away. I'm just going to give it back so that they, they're not screwed up. He did that? Yeah, he did it. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. I mean, he's being so heroic and great. And yet, like, there's something just deeply troubling about that idea. Like, that the American president does this terrible thing. I mean, it's really terrible. WHO screwed up parts of the response to the coronavirus. I I think that. But to take that money away right now, I mean, that is literally just like killing a lot of people, especially in the global south. And it's great that it's back, but also like Bill Gates, really? Anyway, I mean, well, the American I, government should be paying for that. Just to jump in, also that Bill Gates is having to rescue from the make work being created by a diversionary tactic to shift blame from the president. Which, again, is not keeping the main thing the main thing. And then to just support your point, Emily, the idea that superheroes can rush in and solve these kinds of problems. 
undermines the kind of thinking that we were talking about earlier, which is all the stuff you should do to prepare because these problems are going to come. They come regularly. They happen all the time. So deal with it on the on the front end so that you don't have to find billionaires on their islands to get them to hopefully do something to rescue us all. And also the shifting away from American taxpayer and government responsibility, foreign aid, which we should be providing so much more of like that's also not a good trend. Yes. This is not the Slate Plus topic. But you guys are so serious. <laughs> Pretty interesting, You guys are though. so serious. The slate, All right. What are you going to do with your billion dollars? Your billion dollars. So it's not, it's not, we're not, it's not, it's not a, a billion, billion dollars. dollars. It's sort of like some, if you had a million, 10 million to spend. Lots of discretionary income. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve-O Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here. Pepsi Zero Sugar. Partial to pastrami, craving a Cubano. Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact, every bite is better with Pepsi. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.